0: Greetings students, as always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The Great Depression. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide, Origins of the Crisis. When Hoover took office in March 1929, he was extremely popular. He was a self-made millionaire, and led many charitable relief organizations. Hoover could have even run in 1920, but decided to wait. Had he run, he would have ended his term with a crash, and not the beginning of the term, and thus may have went down as a great president. But that's a quirk of history. Unfortunately, Hoover was elected in 1929 at the end of a turbulent decade. Instead of the wild economic highs we typically associate with the Roaring Twenties, there were numerous signs of a fundamentally unstable economy, overloaded with credit, burdened by speculation, and with a massive wealth gap between rich and poor. The return of conservative politics in the 1920s reinforced federal fiscal policies that exacerbated the divide. Overwhelmingly, these policies favored wealthy investors who, flush with cash, spent their money on luxury goods In speculative investments in the rapidly rising stock market. The pro-business policies of the 1920s were designed for an American economy built upon the production and consumption of durable goods. Yet by the late 1920s, much of the market was saturated, so when products failed to sell, inventories piled up, manufacturers scaled back production, and companies fired workers. However, There's a more direct cause of the Great Depression. According to David Kennedy's article that you have to read, the stock market was overvalued because people and banks were buying stocks on margin, which meant you had to only pay 10% for a stock price at first and then pay the rest back over time, just like allotment plans. Well, that means that the stock market may say it has X amount of dollars invested, but in reality... The money on the books may only be 10% of the value. So what will happen when everyone sells? That's right, you have nothing to pay them with. No real money there. Also, banks do not have depositor insurance. They are unregulated and are free to invest your deposits in risky stock schemes to make them more money. Well then, when the market tanks, those investments are wiped out. And that means that your deposit that you thought was safe is now gone, so banks have no money to give back to depositors who are trying to get back their life savings. When you combine this with a massive credit bubble, it is a ticking time bomb, and in every single industry, there is not enough liquidity, meaning that there is too much debt and not enough cash or assets to pay it all back. The point is the whole system is unstable, and all it will take is a severe shock, to bring the whole thing crashing down. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, The Crash. When you combine this instability with the actions of government, you have the recipe for disaster. On October 29, 1929, the stock market crashed, triggered in part by the British raising their interest rates. In the course of a single day, 16.4 million shares of stock were sold and stock values evaporated. Shares of U.S. Steel dropped from $262 to 22 General Motors fell from $73 a share to 8 Overnight, four-fifths of J.D. Rockefeller's fortune, the greatest in American history, vanished. Many stock traders who had lived lavishly had to sell their cars, fancy clothing, and jewelry in order to repay their debts. Others committed suicide, rather than face the humiliation of poverty. But we should all note, the crash did not cause the Great Depression, but it marked the point when all the underlying problems began to take their toll. In response to the crash, in 1930, Congress passed and Hoover signed the Holly Smoot Tariff Act. This was the highest peacetime protective tariff in U.S. history and was passed just as global markets began to crumble. The results were staggering as other countries responded in kind. Tariff walls rose across the globe and international trade ground to a halt. Between 1929 and 1932, international trade dropped from 36 billion to just 12 billion. American exports fell by 78%. Combined with overproduction and declining domestic consumption, the tariff exacerbated the world's economic collapse. Over the next three years, 5,000 banks closed, and tens of thousands of Americans lost their savings. Please go ahead and watch the clip on the PowerPoint from the movie It's a Wonderful Life. Okay, so did you watch the clip? I actually don't really like that movie, because the bad guy, Potter, gets away with everything in the end. Well, anyway, by 1932, one quarter of Americans were out of work, And because few women worked outside the home, this essentially meant that one quarter of American households had no income. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Struggles. Households had to embrace a new level of frugality in daily life. They kept kitchen gardens. They patched worn out clothes. They passed on trips to the movies as they privately struggled to retain ownership of a home or automobile. Women's magazines and radio shows taught Depression-era housemakers how to stretch their food budgets with casseroles and one-pot meals. Favorites included chili, macaroni and cheese, soups, and chipped beef on toast. Potlucks were often organized by churches and became a popular way to share food and a cheap form of social entertainment. Many families strive for self-sufficiency by keeping a small kitchen garden with vegetables and herbs. Some towns and cities allowed for the conversion of vacant lots into community thrift gardens where residents could grow food. For example, between 1931 and 1932, Detroit's thrift garden program provided food for about 20,000 people. Experienced gardeners could be seen helping former office workers, still dressed in white button-down shirts and slacks, to cultivate their crops. The average American family lived by the Depression-era motto, use it up, wear it out, make do, or do without. The iconic image of the Depression is one of the forgotten man, the newly poor, downwardly mobile, unemployed worker, often standing in a bread line or selling apples on a street corner. But women also found themselves in similar dire straits, but rarely turned up in public spaces like breadlines or street corners. Instead, they tried to cope quietly on their own. According to Marital LaSoyer, a writer, quote, I've lived in cities for many months broke, without help, too timid to get in breadlines. I've known many women to live like this, until they simply faint on the street from privations, without saying a word to anyone a woman will shut herself up in a room until it is taken away from her and eat a cracker a day and be as quiet as a mouse. End quote. African Americans, who had long been subject to discrimination and prejudice, often viewed the Depression differently from whites. Many did not even learn about the Great Depression until two years after it happened. Because times had always been hard, but suddenly they got a lot harder. In 1930... 9 out of 10 African-American women had worked in agriculture or domestic service, and both areas were hard hit by the Depression. Many White Housewives who had previously hired servants began to do their own housework, and sometimes white women competed for jobs that had been previously abandoned as too undesirable. Regardless of race, most Americans blamed the man at the top for their problems. People lived in slums called Hoovervilles. They wrapped themselves in shoddy blankets called Hoover blankets and flew Hoover flags. But was it really fair to blame Herbert Hoover for the disaster? Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Policies. Herbert Hoover, like virtually all of his predecessors, believed in American self-reliance, free enterprise, and rugged individualism. He feared that government handouts would weaken the national fiber. He also opposed deficit spending, and he wanted to keep the federal budget balanced. Despite this, Hoover's administration actually did a lot, well, relative to the times. He had Congress lower taxes. He supported funding public works projects, like a dam on the Colorado River, later named the Hoover Dam. Hoover used his bully pulpit to urge businessmen not to fire workers or to cut wages in the bad economy. Yet, for all of these things, there are things that he would just not do as a matter of principle. His willingness to spend and cut taxes was always hemmed to his commitment to balance the budget. One of his major policies was the creation of the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, which gave financial assistance to banks insurance companies, railroads, and state and local governments. The idea is that this money would trickle down to the individuals, but it simply did not work. Hoover also established the President's Organization for Unemployment Relief, nicknamed Poor, in order to help organize efforts of private agencies. While Poor urged charitable giving, charitable organizations were overwhelmed by the growing needs of the multiplying unemployed, underfed, and underhoused Americans. The size and the scope of the Depression overpowered the radically insufficient capacity of private volunteer organizations to mediate the crisis. So how will Americans respond? Please advance to the next slide entitled, The BEF. Hoover had done more than any previous president had done to fight an economic crisis, but he just didn't do enough. And just when it seemed it could not get any worse, 20,000 people converged on Washington, D.C. in the summer of 1932. They were World War I vets whom the government had promised a bonus that would begin in 1945. But they were hard hit by the Depression, and they wanted their bonuses early and thus became known as the Bonus Expeditionary Force playing off of the name of the American Army in France, the American Expeditionary Force. They were led by Walter W. Waters, a sergeant in the First World War, and he urged veterans to attend, and thousands from across the country trekked to the capital. Some hopped trains and carpooled, while others walked, and still more brought their families. These protesters set up a gigantic Hooverville in D.C., Where they stayed for weeks in a sort of Occupy style movement to lobby for their pensions. On June 17th, the Senate voted against paying the bonuses early as veterans chanted outside, The Yanks are starving. The veterans were then told to leave, and Hoover even bought train tickets for some, but thousands refused. Congressmen cowardly slipped out of the legislature and hid from the veterans after their vote. Who had just been deprived of their pensions. The police were then ordered in, and though they had gotten along with the veterans before this, they were instructed to clear them out, and things inevitably turned violent. In response, Hoover ordered in the army, led by General Douglas MacArthur and his top aide, Dwight D. Eisenhower, to remove them. MacArthur was more than ready to do so, as he disliked the multiracial protest movement that threatened segregation in the city. On July 28, 1932, the army, with 200 cavalry and 400 infantry, moved in with bayonets fixed. As they came upon groups of veterans, they threw gas canisters into the crowd, and many of these veterans had been gassed in the war, and now were being gassed by the very army they had fought for. MacArthur then ordered his men to destroy the tent city and the soldiers set fire to the veterans' homes as the veterans tried to escape. One soldier who took part, George S. Patton Jr., who had later become a general in the Second World War, came face to face with another veteran who had saved his life in France during the First World War, though Patton did not repay the favor and pushed the man on. During the conflagration, at least one child was killed in the fires, and thousands of families lost everything. In the aftermath, the press blamed Hoover for the tragic end of the Bonus Army and printed pictures of the flames from the Tent City, visible in the sky behind the White House and the Capitol building. The American people were further outraged by the federal government's inaction in the face of a worsening depression. Hoover tried to blame communist organizers for the Bonus Army, but the press refused to perpetuate the story with no evidence. The American people wanted change, and began demanding immediate action from the federal government in the aftermath of the protest. This was a national low point for the country that is hard to imagine. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, The Election of 1932. When the New York governor, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, accepted the Democratic nomination, he said, quote, I pledge you, I pledge myself, to a new deal for the American people. What exactly did that mean? Well, as governor of New York, FDR had embraced state programs to relieve poverty and provide unemployment insurance. But he did not promise new, expansive federal programs. And even during times of the presidential campaign, he attacked Hoover for overspending. But in an earlier campaign speech, he had said that, quote, "...the country needs and demands bold, persistent experimentation." It is common sense to take a method and try it. If it fails, admit it frankly and try another. But above all, try something. And this would be FDR's approach in a nutshell, and it was good enough for most Americans. As FDR defeated Hoover in a landslide, and the Democrats now controlled both houses of Congress, which would be very important for passing legislation. Please advance to the last slide, entitled, Conclusion. The fiscal policies of the preceding Republican business presidents undoubtedly widened the gap between rich and poor and fostered a standoff over international trade, but such policies were widely popular and for much of the 1920s were widely seen as a source of the decade's explosive growth. But low corporate and personal taxes, easy credit, and depressed interest rates further contributed to the economic instability. The massive credit bubble, buying stocks on margin, and the declining farm prices over the previous decade only exacerbated this instability. When the Great Depression hit, Hoover attempted to expand the federal government slightly in order to help the economy, but he gave money to business owners, not the people. But we should also note that in the 1920s, citizens did not expect the government to provide handouts, although this idea would change by 1932. As a result, the economic crisis widened, unemployment skyrocketed to 25.6% by 1933, and cities ran out of resources like Detroit, and individuals lost millions of dollars worth of savings. In many ways, men and women experienced the depression differently. Men were socialized to think of themselves as breadwinners. When they lost their jobs or saw their incomes reduced, they felt like failures because they couldn't take care of their families. Women, on the other hand, saw their roles in the household enhanced as they juggled to make ends meet. As the Depression worked its way across the United States, Americans hoped to weather the economic storm as best they could, waiting for some form of relief. Any answer to the ever-mounting economic collapse that strangled so many American lives. That relief finally came with the election of FDR as he embarked on a new deal the American people. Well, that is all I have for you for today. I hope you are staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.